Welcome to Real Estate Investing Abundance, the show for busy, fulfilled professionals like you to learn how to develop financial independence built on solid, passive real estate investments. Now, here is your host, Dr. Alan Lomax. Hello, enlightened investors. I'm so delighted to be back with you again today as we explore the wonderful world of retail real estate investing. We've had many discussions about other aspects of commercial real estate, and I am delighted today to be able to delve deeper into retail with Rafael Collazo, who is a commercial real estate agent and author, real estate investor, and a recovering engineer. He is the host of the Commercial Real Estate Academy and the sponsor of Commercial Real Estate 101 Meetup. So, Raphael, take us into the show and share an experience that helped you to be who you are today. Well, first off, Alan, it's an honor to be here. Glad that we were able to get this together and I'm excited to delve into all things retail related. But as far as formative uh, times in my life, uh, so I was born in Northeast Italy. My dad is Puerto Rican and he was in the Air Force as a pediatrician. And so he met my mother in, in Northeast Italy. So my family is currently located in Italy and also in Puerto Rico. But my formative years, probably one of the more impactful experiences that I've had was related to my times that I would spend with my grandparents in Italy. My grandfather went through a lot in his life. He was born in Northeast Italy prior to World War II. And then after World War II, he left Italy at 16 because there were no jobs available. And so he went to Australia and ultimately became worked a lot for the government in, you know, capacities that were, you know, not very fun, right? He mm-hmm. had he, they would go on these different excursions and they would do work that no one wanted to do and that was just so that he could gain residency in Australia and ultimately create a life for himself and his family. And so luckily he was able to do that. He met my grandmother and had my mom and my uncles and ultimately made it back to Italy in the late 60s, early 70s, hmm. and was a manufacturing manager for a period of time until he retired and then ultimately became a farmer at the end of his retirement. So, you know, a lot of my fondest memories are being on the farm with him and, you know, him just showing us different things that he's doing. He's a very no nonsense type of individual, one of the most resourceful people I've ever met in my life. He very rarely went to the store. If anything, he bought meats and cheeses and stuff from the store, but all of the other things we would produce on the farm. And so you would always find whatever's in season, he would bring it in and he would cook something and make it into an absolutely delicious meal. And, you know, that was that was pretty impactful for me because I realized that, you know, no matter the the, the cards you're dealt, like there, there's ways for you to be resourceful if you really think about it. And, and no one's going to listen to your excuses, essentially. So that that's those are, I guess, some of the formative experiences. As far as one in particular, there, there's so many that I, I don't know if I can isolate one, but really he was a big impact in my life early on. Wow, what a diverse background, international and also agrarian. And I, I don't know how many people your age know of anyone who is actually growing their own food for consumption. So, wow, what an experience that had to have been there. A lot we could talk about in conjunction with that, but let's get into real estate. You started out as an engineer and then you moved into brokerage. That is an unusual transition. Tell us about that. Yeah. So that, I, I get that question a lot. Uh, and then the, the main question is like, why would you leave engineering to go into any uh, brokerage or an entrepreneurial endeavor? And I mean, the reason being is that, you know, 
for, for most of my life, I would say probably around 16, 17, I started getting an entrepreneurial itch. And, you know, I really started my first endeavor in college, my sophomore year. A good friend of mine and I started a pasta catering company called Pasticity. And so we would service, you know, a variety of different student org- organizations on campus. You know, we would go to do luncheons for corporate corporate entities as well. We kind of grew it a little bit. Obviously, it wasn't enough to cover all the bills, but it was something that, you know, grew over time until my graduation and ultimately had to decide whether or not I wanted to pursue more higher education in the form of a master's or, you know, get a job in the engineering space or pursue the the entrepreneurial endeavor further. And so that's what I decided to do because I got accepted into an incubator in Phoenix. And ultimately, you know, we learned about the different ways to be able to you know, grow and expand a business. Along with that, I through that relationship with the incubator, I met one of my mentors who was a financial advisor in town who just so happened to own a restaurant and he gave me the opportunity to manage that restaurant. And so I learned a lot about the restaurant business. But, you know, after doing it for a while, I realized that it wasn't the long-term play for me. I knew that it wasn't where I wanted to be long term. And so ultimately I transitioned away from what I was doing in that setting to Get into the software space. I studied industrial engineering in college, but I knew that the software industry was one that was very vibrant, and there's a lot of opportunities in that industry. And so, ultimately, I self-taught myself, uh, you know, a few programming languages, and ultimately got an opportunity with a company that implemented software systems for government agencies. You know, the the, the role itself allowed me to travel to Washington D.C. I lived there for about a year and a half. Then I moved to Puerto Rico. I was there for two years on a big software project. Then ultimately moved to here to Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, after Hurricane Maria put that project on hold. As far as the transition was concerned, I'd always been kind of looking to do something a little bit more entrepreneurial after you know, what I was doing previously. Uh, it was a very transitory type of role. So I was moving every other year and it was just you know, not sustainable long-term if you wanted to build something of significance. And so the wheels started turning around 2017, 2018. And when I moved to you know, Louisville and I saw the potential opportunity in the middle of the country, I figured, you know, let, let's try to see what I can do as far as setting myself up to be able to, you know, maybe make the jump at some point. And, you know, there's this book I read called Set for Life by Scott Trench that kind of, you know, helped amplify what I was trying to do. Essentially what one of the biggest lessons that I took away from that book are, you know, your top three expenses are your housing, transportation, and food. So if you can lower your housing costs, you know, you give yourself the the runway to be able to maybe not make a whole lot of money the first few years like in most entrepreneurial endeavors it takes a while to build up you know the income so in order for you to be able to do that having a little bit of wiggle room as far as your budget's concerned makes a huge difference and so i bought a four unit property uh, and lived in one of the apartments and rented out the other three and that enabled you know the ultimate leap to occur so that that's how it happened as far as why i chose brokerage uh, my mom is a residential agent in arizona and she started back in 2009, you know, obviously in the depths of the recession and has been pretty successful over the last 13 years in her respective career. I looked on the residential side and it just didn't mesh well with my personality. And I'm much more of a business slash numbers driven guy. So that kind of is where the, the commercial side came into play because now I get to deal with commercial clients that are business owners, they're investors, whether they're you know, individual investors or institutions, and I'm able to kind of speak the lingo a lot more effectively as a result of me being from an engineering background. So that's kind of the reason why I decided to jump and some of the you know steps leading up to what I when I ultimately did. So, Raphael, it's an interesting uh, trajectory. Starting out any business is challenging, and lots of frustrations, lots of barriers in the way to success on any entrepreneurial journey. 
One of the important things, as you point out, is building a personal and a professional brand, and you focus primarily on digital marketing. First of all, tell us what's the difference between a personal brand and a professional brand, or are they one and the same? So that's actually a great question. They can be, you know, I, I like to blend them somewhat together. You know, I think I think having some personalization to your pers- professional brand really makes the connection stronger with the people who are ultimately consuming your content. If you're just straight professional all the time, you know, it's harder to connect with someone than it is if you also incorporate some things from your personal life, right? You, you know, you we're all humans. We have a, all have hobbies, we all have interests, we all have uh, you know, setbacks in life. We you know, it it, it the, the canvas of life has many colors. And so, you know, being able to, you know, provide the touch of color to your content kind of leads to, you know, building a strong personal and professional brand ultimately. But uh, the way I describe, you know, personal and professional brand building is being able to produce content so that people recognize you as an expert in something, right? It doesn't necessarily have to be a broad brush, right? Because what I what I try to do because I'm I'm more so on the commercial real estate side is I just produce a ton of commercial real estate content so that, you know, people know ex- that that he's the commercial guy. And I can't tell you how many times I've run into people or people have messaged me on on LinkedIn or you know other social media platforms, just saying, "Hey, I saw your post the other day. You know, I, I know I've been following you for a little while because you've been producing a lot of great content. I have a question regarding this, and it doesn't always lead to business, but again, we're in we're we're in a relationship business. So the more conversations you have, the more people you meet, ultimately opportunities arise. So you know, I would say, you know. I guess the, from the start, one of the biggest things is just consistency and in, in how you produce content. And I'm sure with your podcast, you you've said you've done over several hundred episodes. I mean, that's kind of the name of the game. But it all starts with starting something and being consistent over time. Just for my own information here, you had mentioned people contacting you via your post, but you also do a made-up group and a podcast. Where are you finding that you are really actually? Which one of those three really produces the? The majority of your context. That's a great question. So the cool thing about doing a meetup group is that you can actually advertise it in a variety of different ways. So one is the physical meetup. So I can actually have a physical meetup and see someone in person. While we're at a meetup, I can record the meetup. So it could be a live stream. So people can tune in from all across the the country. And we've had Mm -hmm. people tune in from all across the country. And then you could produce that into a video or podcast format. So that's another thing. So we have the commercial real estate one-on-one podcast that we created, which is just the MP3 version of the meetup group, has done extremely well. And I think part of the reason for that is the name of it. Commercial Real Estate 101 seems to be uh, you know, keyword heavy as far as people search terms are concerned. And so, you know, I would say that one's probably been the one that's that's caused the most conversations. But from a local perspective on the brokerage side, I mean the YouTube has really been what's what's done it for us, you know, oh, really? for me at least, okay. you know, because yeah. Because I post it on you know Facebook and I and I and I obviously YouTube is the second largest search engine in the world outside of you know Google Google search and so you know if you if you start ranking for some of these keywords when people search on YouTube your content pops up and it becomes a lot more of an organic form of meat of marketing so well that's interesting utilizing one piece of content in in multiple directions really smart way to go there. Because I totally agree, content is so, so, so important, but it can be really challenging developing really viable and useful uh, content. 
particularly doing it on a regular and consistent basis. Let's get into retail here specifically, Raphael, and tell us how it is that you analyze retail investment properties. I'm sure there's some similarities between that and multifamily or self-storage and so on and so forth. But I'm sure there's also some significant differences. Definitely. When it comes to the way that the numbers, I mean, again, it's it's return metrics, return profiles. So depending on what return expectations you have, ultimately you determine whether or not an opportunity is worthwhile pursuing. However, the things you look at from a retail standpoint versus self-storage versus multifamily are going to be different. So from a retail perspective, I mean, a lot of it has to do with visibility. So can you see the retail property from the roadway? A lot of times in particular, if you're talking about certain types of retail uses that that benefit greatly from visibility. Accessibility, can you easily access the facility? If it's one that you have to do, you know, go into a back neighborhood and, and loop around in order to get to, a lot of people are just not going to... The friction, you have to reduce friction when it comes to being able to access the, the, the facility. And then obviously traffic counts, you know, and that, that's super heavy, you know, f- super big benefit for different types of uses that require a lot of foot traffic whether that's you know in an office setting, maybe they're they're a restaurant that's close to a lot of office building, foot traffic's going to be a big deal for them. If you're on off the highway and you want to be able to have a lot of cars go by so you can see your store, that's also also important. Along with that, demographics of the area, depending on what types of uses are in the facility, you know you're probably not going to put a Louis Vuitton store in in a in an area that you know is middle income to lower income. It just won't survive long term. Tenant mix is also extremely important. So. You know, it's an ecosystem. Any type of multi-tenant retail center is going to be an ecosystem. So you don't want uses that cannibalize other uses. Like you wouldn't put two liquor stores in the same center because, again, their their clients are the same and they're going to cannibalize their sales. So it's not going to be very successful. So you know, anytime you're looking at these retail opportunities, those are you know some of the high level things you look at. And then once you start getting more granular, you got to look at the leases, and the leases are really going to dictate where the opportunity lies as far as you know increasing the rents or you know, if, if it's gross lease versus triple net lease, you know, so, you know, that, that's where you start getting a little bit more granular and, and understanding about where the value add opportunities lie. Tell us the difference between gross and triple net. Sure. So gross is typically one flat rate covers everything. So, you know, gross leases a lot of times, at least in our market, some markets are different. I know I talk to people in Dallas and sometimes you'll see it double net or triple net lease with with office properties. But here locally, a lot of times the, the office leases are either gross lease, meaning that you pay one flat rent and that covers your electric, water, janitorial, whatever is associated with your space, that's covered within the gross lease, the gross lease guidelines. As far as triple net's concerned, you know, you pay one flat rent, but that don't that that only covers your rent. Then you have to pay a, a, your pro rata share of taxes, insurance, and general maintenance for the property. Uh, that's typically what you see in a retail setting. Just depending on the markets, obviously that may be different, but in most metro areas, you'll see rate retail leases follow some form of structure pertaining to you know a triple net lease. Sometimes you'll even see a percentage lease, which means you pay a percentage of sales above a certain breakpoint for to, to the landlord if they help you generate more sales. But those aren't as common uh, as triple net. So in, in some respects, Raphael, that does coincide with what you're going to find in residential. Uh, there are. Some residential facilities that include utilities in them, not very many. It's not very profitable. I would think it would be the same thing in retail, and I would think most owners would want to move away from that. Is that is that the case? Yeah, I would say so. And, and, and a lot of times when you see these leases that are underperforming, it's just either the owner didn't know about what the market dynamics were, and that's 
obviously comp very common or sometimes they just want to have the, the space filled you know mm-hmm. and, and they're not willing to put in the the money to bring it up to to what it, a good market opportunity could be you know i've seen a lot of times where uh, you could have a building in a great location but it's run down because the landlord just doesn't want to put money into mm-hmm. it and ultimately tenants are not attracted to the space because it's like okay th- yeah this is a great location but it's run down and given the fact you're not taking care of the building what's the likelihood of you actually taking care of things when it, things need to be done and so that can also cause you know issues on that front so you know sometimes you see it i, I we did a deal uh, last year that was a pretty large deal that had 11 tenants and i think 8 of them were on were on modified gross leases where the landlord was responsible for taxes insurance and general maintenance and the tenants were just responsible for their electric but the mm. water was still covered by you know the, the landlord so that's obviously a huge value add opportunity for the for the for my client who ultimately mm. ended up purchasing the property because you know as soon as, as as those leases roll over you can start restructuring the leases such that they become more of a triple net property and ultimately if the tenant decides they don't want to renew the the the, the property had phenomenal visibility great accessibility was in a great area as far as the demographics were, were concerned so if, Backfilling that space wouldn't have been an issue. Mm-hmm. So at, at a certain point, you know, the the, the tenant's going to realize, okay, like if I really want to stay in this area, I've already kind of established myself as within the market. I built up my clientele, which is a big deal for retail tenants. Moving is a lot more difficult in a retail setting than it is maybe in a other types of uses like an office use. You're not going to be, you know, tied to an office building as a tenant. You're really just going to follow where the opportunity lies. Whereas with retail, people go to your Retail store because they know you're there. So if you if you were to leave that space, you have to go back, go go and continue to build up your clientele again. Uh, so okay, it's one of those yeah. things where you know they're a little bit more sticky than mm-hmm. other types of tenants. In terms of lease terms, you know, in residential, they're mostly year long leases, and then they renew on an annual basis. What are you finding in retail? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, it it, it really depends. Uh, you know, I would say if I were to do a general rule, it's usually in the three to five year range, but it really depends. So if if you know if there's a tenant that wants a significant build out on a space, meaning they want the space to be modified for their particular use, a lot of times the landlord would say, okay, yes, I'm willing to invest maybe a hundred grand in fitting out the space for you, but I want a ten year lease, and we're going to make sure that we amortize some of the cost of build out. Over the course of the lease, too. So, along with paying, you know, whatever the base rate is, we're going to add on a little bit each month to cover whatever it would have cost me to build out the space. So, that's also something. If you're looking at single tenant at lease properties, those are more like investment real estate that you see, like the Walgreens, the Taco Bells, the you know Dollar Generals, etc. A lot of those leases are going to be much longer because most of the time the developer will build the building strictly for that that use. And then they'll sign a 10, 20, sometimes 30-year lease with options on the back end as well. So, mm-hmm. you know, I would say if you're just looking at a retail center that is, you know, more of a you know, neighborhood retail center, three to five is probably a, a safe bet. When you start looking at some of these larger corporately backed leases, you're looking at, you know, 10, 20, 30 years. Raphael, you have a whole lot going on and a lot of things that our enlightened investors would like to know more about. How do we get in touch with you? Yeah. Well, first off, again, thank you so much for, you know, it's been an honor to be on the podcast. It's been having a great discussion. But as far as getting in contact with me, I'm, I'm local to Louisville, Kentucky. You know, you could reach out to me via my email. I know I, we provided it earlier, but it's Raphael at Crisantigroup.com. And then also I've, I've written a few books on commercial real estate. My most, my most recent one was Before You Sign That Lease, The Small Business Owner's Guide to Leasing Commercial Space. And I'll actually be releasing 
uh, my next book, which is Before You Buy That Building, The Small Business Owner's Guide to Buying Commercial Real Estate. It's going to be part of a series, but that's going to be focused on you know the steps you need to take in order to make sure that you're, you're doing the right things as far as you know purchasing a property as a business owner. Rafael, what are the pitfalls of navigating this process of buying and or leasing commercial real estate, particularly in the retail space? Sure. I mean, that, that's a great question. I mean, a lot of times when I sit down with... We can start off on the leasing side first. Is A lot of people, when they first you know, start getting into business, they think, oh, I need a space to legitimize my business concept. But in reality, there's a lot of uses that you don't even need a space. So you, you, why, why get the extra overhead and potentially cripple your business when you could you know, work towards building up to a point where you can actually sustain you know, a, a space and it can actually be beneficial for you and your business? And so you know, the first thing that I usually do when I sit down with clients is like, do you even need a space? Like, let's, let's walk through it and, and get a feel for if you're ready to take on a space or even if your business use requires it. Like, if you're, if you're a software developer, why do you need a 3,000 square foot office space or, you know, downtown? Mm. Unless you have like an established, you know, a established business that is, is producing at a high level, I mean, you could develop at home. Or, you know, if you're traveling, you know, you, you have a, you know, a mobile gym gymnast, right? You can go travel to your clients and build up that reputation. And then, once you build up your clientele, then you can sign a lease for the space. So those are some of the things. Obviously, as you start going through the process of you know, working with a commercial agent, I think it's very important because they understand the dynamics of the market. There's a lot of times that I work with clients that are like, oh, this is my budget. When in reality, in order for you to even get in the space, your budget needs to be here. Mm-hmm. Or you know, you maybe you need to modify your expectations. And then once you start getting into the negotiations of leases, there's different provisions within a lease you got to look for. Obviously, understanding the difference between a triple net lease, a gross lease, Modify gross lease, all these different types of leases, so that you can understand whether or not you're getting a good deal, and you know what are your 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 out of pocket costs on a month to month basis. Those are very important, and then provisions within the lease that require you to that give you the opportunity to potentially alleviate some of the financial burden if for some reason the business doesn't work out, like a subleasing clause. Those are very important provisions. Along with that, there's HVAC, you know, provisions in there. So like if the HVAC goes out, who's responsible for replacing it? If you're not careful. And the, the landlord passed that responsibility along to you, that could really cripple your business. So that's on the leasing front. As far as the purchase front, a lot of it has to do with educating someone about the financials of actually purchasing a property. Because you have to go through lenders, you have to provide proper documentation. As you go through the process of purchasing a commercial property, there's you know environmental concerns potentially, depending on whether or not you're going to buy an industrial property, or maybe there's been a gas station or some other uses on site that could have contaminated the site. Those are some considerations to consider. And then you know, going through the process, the due diligence process, similar to what you would see in a multifamily setting, you got to go through the units, you got to inspect all the HVAC, the, the HVCs in the in the building, the roof, you know, all the major mechanicals to make sure that everything works well, and then ultimately getting to the closing table and making sure that you know once you do close on the property, you can hit the ground running and you know mm-hmm. expand your business within the space. Raphael, tell us about one of your major setbacks in life, and it could have something to do with your real estate endeavors or not. But tell us about that major setback. How'd you come through that time and what did you learn from it? I think we can go back to the early days of after university uh, when I took on the opportunity at the restaurant and ultimately the incubator for my for my business. So you know, I, I did that for about three to six months, realized pretty early on that it wasn't something I want to do long-term. And I went through a period of time where I was very down on myself and didn't know what I wanted to do. And that obviously affected my my production at work and everything else. And so I actually got demoted from manager to you know server. And then from there, 
I just got even more depressed on myself and mm-hmm. ultimately got fired from that op- from that job. And so when I got fired, I realized, oh, oh God, like I got to do something because I can't, I got to survive, I got to sustain myself. And so that kind of kicked me back into gear and said, okay, you know, I've, I have these, these marketable skill sets. I have things that I that I've, have going for me. What am I going to do that's going to that's going to align me in a direction where I can essentially get an opportunity that's lucrative and will you know open up new doors for me? And so I started full force into trying to figure out what I wanted to do, and that ultimately led me to trying to get a, a career in software, in particular on the consulting side, because I I feel like I'm pretty great, I'm pretty good with people, and you know being able to convince someone of something that's relatively complex and being able to break it down into component parts that's always something that it that was very came very easy to me and so I thought well let's go the consulting route and let's try to see if I can get something in the software space and that's kind of led me to the the opportunity that I ultimately got with this this company and that's also through me self teaching myself SQL and we 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 utilize vb.net I, I I wouldn't I wouldn't claim to be an expert but I don't think they were looking for someone who was an expert in those software languages they just wanted to see someone who could think like an engineer and could problem solve and ultimately, I got the opportunity because of that. So, through the firing, through the you know the, the depression, I would say mm-hmm. over those period of time, I was able to turn that into a new opportunity, and ultimately gave me a lot of opportunities from that. So, Raphael, thank you so much for sharing your setback and the vulnerabilities that come with sharing that, which also shows us a way that out of those kinds of things, and it's not easy. I mean. People talk about overcoming their difficulties. And you mentioned depression. A lot of people never bring that up. But when you have those major setbacks, it's always an issue. And it's not as easy to overcome depression as what a lot of people think. But you were able to get it together through that. Congratulations on that. And I'm glad to see that you use that as a building block to something uh, better and more productive. Enlightened Investors. Thank you so much for being with us again today. I've enjoyed Raphael's conversation, and I'm sure you have as well. Join us next time for another exciting and informative uh, episode. Raphael, thanks for being with us today. Thanks so much, Alan. It was great to be with you. Thank you for tuning in to Real Estate Investing Abundance, brought to you by Steve Talker Capital a company working for passionate professionals like you to develop financial independence built on solid, passive real estate investments. As part of our efforts to make the world a better place, Steve Talker Capital contributes to activities and organizations committed to better understand the equine. These endeavors attempt to enhance the human treatment of horses worldwide. Steve Talker Capital, working for a world where all creatures, great and small, flourish abundantly. For resources to develop your financial independence, connect with us at stevetalker.com.